Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ian Atkins of Flatbrim Wines. We're at Way Down Wines in Portland. It's August 4th, 2020. Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah. Uh, first question for you, and our most important question to start with, is why wine? There's not many jobs you can have where you get to work with your hands and be creative and do a lot of uh, business side. Yeah, it's like the perfect mix of like labor and art. That's, that's why I enjoy it. Tell us a little about your kind of life before you got started in wine. Um, I started my adult life in the army. Um, and while I was married and while I was away, my wife had started a restaurant. So when I came back, it was, you know, not a good choice to stay in the army and move because she was pursuing that career. So I got out of the army and got into restaurants with her and just started selling wine and became really interested in talking about wine and uh, learning all about it. And from that, I decided I wanted to make wine. So we'd moved from Texas to Oregon to pursue a winemaking career. So tell me more about the, about the restaurant itself and what, and what prompted the kind of wine interest. Uh, we were in El Paso, Texas, and doing a southern-style restaurant. Um, and there just wasn't a lot of different wines in El Paso. It was mostly California, um, South America, Spain, big red wines, basically. Um, and I started getting customers asking for more like Pinot Noir, uh, Pinot Gris, um, things like that. Just a, like a lighter take on wine in general. So tell me about learning wine uh, from that side, uh, learning wine in terms of serving customers. What did you have to learn and how did you, how did you go about learning it? Um, especially in a place like El Paso, I think people want credibility. So I started my SOM certifications and I didn't go very far because I was paying for them myself and it wasn't uh, going to increase my pay <laughs> or anything if I kept going. So I, uh, just, I think I did the first or second one and then uh, just started learning on my own but I think that definitely helped uh, we became in the city for sure like the place to go to buy wine and I would special order things for people and the uh, reps got to know that I treated things correctly so they would sell me highly allocated things and I would sell them to like uh, I had like a Facebook group that followed me and so I would get things in and just go out that afternoon it became like a little side trade deal in wine and one of the big ones was uh, Antique Terra, mm -hmm. Maggie Harrison. That became like one of the ones that we were, everybody was always trying to get. Um, that's when I really learned about Oregon wine, was trying to, I never actually got them. Everybody would just hound me about getting them, but I don't think that they were dealing down there yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So were there other um, sort of intriguing wines to you, uh, regions or varietals or styles of wine? Oh, I like everything. I don't have like a favorite. Um, I really just love learning about wine, probably to a higher degree than I enjoy drinking wine. Uh, so anything that's 
interesting. I mean, I used to have just as much fun sitting in Walla Walla as, you know, I've been into the cellars and champagne and I've had, you know, equal, equally good times. So you mentioned that at some point winemaking became something you're interested in. Do you remember why winemaking or, or what point that became something you wanted to do? Uh, I don't know. I don't really remember now. It's been <laughs> quite a few years. I, just, I think it was just the uh, idea of having my own product maybe to sell or like I've had all this knowledge and I wanted to have more practical application for it. I'm a terrible salesman as well. So I wanted to get out of that gig. So when you decided on winemaking, it was did you decide to did you decide on Oregon right away, or what was the kind of process where you wanted to go? Um, I uh, I don't know if I decided right away, but it was definitely always in the back of my mind, and especially in Portland. You know, I go all the way out as far as Walla Walla to the east, and as far south as Medford. And I like that if you're in Portland, there's not many varietals you can't get. And you can pretty much work with whatever you want to work with. And it's not too crazy of a drive to do it. What about learning the actual, actual winemaking process? Well, luckily, I don't know if it's lucky or if it's... In Oregon, it's easy to work for free places. It's a lot harder to find like a good paying gig. So that's kind of why I became why I started my own winery. Um, but I used to, I lived next to Fos Piste when I first moved here, when he was in the industrial area, the central east side. So I uh, worked with him a little bit um, in some other urban places. I haven't done too much out in the valley because we uh, were working here in the city as well. Once you got here, what were your first impressions of Oregon's wine industry? Uh, it was exciting. I think at the time that when I first got here, all the urban stuff was just taking off and getting a lot of attention and the more uh, uh, out of the ordinary varietals were also getting a lot of attention and people were making the lighter style, the Vindeswaff style wines that I really like. Petnat was taking off, like all these things that were just new. So when I got here, it was really new and exciting. So you mentioned you wanted to start your own label because you're working for free anyway. So tell me, yeah. about, like, tell me about the process of starting your own label and, and, and choosing all the, I mean, all the choices you have to make when you're starting a label. Um, so that's one thing I'll say for working in Oregon is everybody's really open about their contacts. So you tell someone you want to start a winery, they'll give you the name of the one lawyer that say everybody in the state uses and she helps you do your work and then the one accounting firm that everybody in Portland I know for sure uses and that gets you most of the way there and then it's all because the it's not as big as California but there's a sizable operate like wine industry in Washington and in Oregon that just used equipment floating around mm -hmm. so then you know everybody tells you to go on wine business and they used equipment classifieds and you just start collecting stuff mm -hmm. and eventually you have enough to do a harvest. <laughs> <laughs> what about finding like a winery space and, ch and choosing a label? Um, yeah, well we were still doing restaurants in Portland at the time so I had to be in Portland because I worked a lot at the restaurants. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it was about finding a warehouse space. And uh, I'd been to a lot of urban wineries in Sonoma and kind of knew what I wanted it to look like or the area that I should find. Um, I didn't really want to be public facing at all. So this, you know, I just found warehouse and industrial district uh, that wasn't too crowded. <laughs> what about the name Flatbread? Um, there's not much to it. It's, you know, it's hard to find a name. I didn't think my last name sounded great on the label. So um, I just like hats that aren't in my way. Um, so I always have them up. When I was in the army, I was constantly in trouble. People call me, uh, I forgot the name. It's the old actor's name, but he always used to wear it like, and they used to make those army movies about World War II, like he always had his hat propped up on his head. And they're like, don't do that. Uh, but I was always in trouble for that because I can't stand to see it, uh, a hat on my head. So anyways, I had a, like my cowboy hats I'd always flatten out. I grew up in South Texas, but I always flatten out and wear on the back of my head like that. Um, so that's just something I enjoy was like a flattened, flat brim. And when I was in the army, I was in a cavalry unit in the, I always thought it was funny that the Stetsons they gave us like came that way. Like for whatever reason, they don't curl theirs up like a cowboy hat, they have them like flattened. Uh, yeah, so it, it was more of just like finding a name that sounded good. It's just, you know, it's more of a vanity thing, I think, than a practical <laughs> one. You talked about coming here when there were kind of a lot of, a lot of new and exciting things happening in terms of grapes and varieties and regions. So tell me about choosing what you wanted to make and where you wanted to make it from. So finding vineyards and finding grapes. Um, so what I think makes wine as a beverage, like having lasted thousands of years, is tartaric acid. And it's a scientifically proven fact that organically managed vineyards have higher tartaric acid. So that was definitely what I'm pursuing in all the vineyards I work with is um, great acidity, you know, minimal intervention. I don't, the more you're out there doing, uh, I think the more it's likely to swing in bad years or good years. Um, I like something that's, especially in Oregon, you can, in the Valley, it's, you can find things that are consistent year to year. What about types of grapes you want to work with, like actual varietals? Um, yeah, it's definitely changed. Uh, when I first started out, um, especially working with Jesse at Fos Peace, I thought I was going to do more Rhone-inspired wines, and I never made really any. <laughs> like, I didn't go. And then um, I think Cabernet Franc from Southern Oregon, I think, is just one of the best wines you can buy right now. I think it's just <laughs> uniquely great. Uh, and I say like all the unique stuff I wanted to work with, but making Pinot Noir from Eola Amity Hills, I still think is the best in the world. Mm -hmm. Like I can pick them out. Like if you hand me a Pinot, I can tell you if it was from Eola Amity Hills every time. It's, I think it's uh, just the best region in the world <laughs> to make Pinot Noir. It's crazy. Why that, why that region specifically? What's special about the Eola Amity Hills? Um, see the Van Duzer effect. So like the winery that I, or the vineyard I worked with is called Calamity Hills, like a small, operation and I've since had to move on because I'm bigger now and they've sold it anyways so um but you stand at their house and you can see clouds all around you but it would be blue sky above their house because the Van Duzer winds are blowing all the clouds away so you're getting more sun but then you're also a little cooler than the rest of the valley so it's ripening but it's not but it's hanging longer mm -hmm. so it's a combination of longer hang time but good sun so you just get really ripe tasting 
really fresh, bright grapes every year. Amazing. So when you started making wine, was there something about the process that was unexpected to you or that surprised you? Um, I, don't, I don't know if it was surprising, but it was reaffirming that like a really well-managed organic vineyard will just give you, it pretty much gives you wine. Like you just babysit the grapes during fermentation and then you'll have great wine. And when you start getting out in some uh, vineyards that are you know, more conventionally managed, um, even if they're sustainable, like live certified, but maybe they have to irrigate higher, they're fertilizing because they have deficiencies, then in the cellar, you're also working harder to fix some of the problems or you're just not gonna have the robust fermentation and as a minimal intervention winery, that's always a problem. Mm -hmm. Trying to either get them hot or cool them down or, you know, it's always something, but the really good vineyards and the really good grapes just go through it on their own. Don't, don't really do anything. So tell me about your first, first harvest, your first production experience, and and kind of getting your the initial product going. Was it was it what you hoped? Did you did you make what you wanted to make? What what, what were kind of the stumbling blocks early on? I think when I made it, I was excited about it. Um, and then looking back, you know. The more you know, <laughs> uh, I probably wouldn't have been excited about it. Like I gave bottles of that wine to people I respected. And now I probably wouldn't have. I don't know. <laughs> wanted to see that. Uh, but yeah, I was excited. I thought it was great. It was a Cab Franc from Southern Oregon. Uh, I was just really glad to make it. I mean, I, some of those, it was received really well. And that's kind of allowed me to grow a little quicker was that first wine was received really well and people were excited about it and then kind of launched the launched the label when you started did you have a uh, growth in mind did you have a size in mind did you have any kind of a long-term goal um no i didn't know enough about manage or owning a winery i think to have like a realistic goal of what that was going to look like mm -hmm. i think since i've been in this longer i realized how big you have to be uh, so that's been daunting, you know, three or four years in, I was like, oh, this has to be so much bigger to work. Let's get started. So that's, uh, that's so what where, I've been working on now. Where are you now in that process and what's your kind of end number that you have in mind? Um, I think you'll hear it kicked around that 2,500 cases of what it takes to support a family. I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, you know, I'm at that number now. Um, I think to get out of an urban space and maybe buy land and start farming, it, I need to be around 5,000 cases to make that work financially. So that's where I'm trying to grow to is the end game is to own a vineyard in, the, in Oregon. You have a spot in mind? Well, I'm split. Uh, no, because I'm split halfway from where I'm buying grapes anyways. You know, I buy so much from Southern Oregon that having a vineyard down there would be helpful. Then I buy so much from the gorge and I buy so much in the Willamette Valley that I mean having a vineyard in either of those places would I'm never going to be able to grow enough to make 5,000 cases I don't think because mm -hmm. uh, land is really expensive <laughs> but uh, so if I could have a vineyard in one of those three places it would be great. As you've as you've grown and, 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 acquire, and acquired more grapes so tell me about the 
you, you mentioned what you look for in terms of grapes, in terms of vineyards. What do you look for in terms of people you work with, in terms of like the vineyard, vineyard owners, vineyard managers you're working with? Um, I don't know. I don't talk a lot or socialize much, so I, I don't know. I don't really talk to, it's just emails back and forth. So, I mean, usually it's just people that are open with the information, I guess. Um, if I have to, you know, hound somebody for really basic stuff, I probably just won't do it. Because I'm not big enough to get someone's attention, uh, then it's probably just not going to work out in the long term. You talked about being a, a minimal interventionist. Uh, tell me, kind of elaborate on your winemaking philosophy and, and what you want people to like take away from your wines. Um, so the philosophy is just, I always want to make something that's just enjoyable. Um, I would, I try to build complexity in other ways besides just really ripe grapes that are really extracted. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just I grew up in the desert and I like lighter, more refreshing things. It's just a taste preference. Um, so when I bring things in, I've, I've usually picked early. I don't think my alcohols ever get out of the 13%. I try to keep them in the 12s. Mm -hmm. um, and usually when you're doing that, the acid's gonna help you a lot manage your uh, bacteria load or just you know microorganisms. Um, but yeah, that's the thing, is just getting the grapes in and getting them immediately into fermentation and just managing that so that you don't have to fix something later. And that's the real critical point, is when you get it in, getting it out of the vineyard, seeing what was happened right prior to picking, because last year we had a lot of rain in Willamette Valley prior to picking, so it was trying to get that ferment started without any delay, because there was definitely you know, microorganisms growing on it of all the rain so it's like we want the yeast to start eating everything before they start eating everything so that was, you know that's the philosophy it um, is just day one starting to make things healthy and not trying to fix it you know six months down the line i'm curious about learning that kind of the, that kind of lesson and learning that the kind of tools that you have at your disposal at what point do you feel sort of confident making those kinds of decisions, pick decisions, and, and, and at what point do you feel confident like fixing things that do go wrong? How long did that take you? I'll always fix them. I, I don't want to send out something that's bad and try to come up with like a story of why it isn't bad. <laughs> um, uh, you know, so I'll always fix it at the end. I think uh, minimal interventions, the what you're striving for, uh, you know, I wouldn't hold myself to it to release a bad product that's, you know, not gonna, I'd rather throw it away. Um, so, um, yeah, I'll say that's, what I'm trying to say about minimal, minimal intervention is it's, you know, it's, uh, for me it's not dogmatic. Uh, I just like wines that way. I think I can taste it if it's been especially like a reverse osmosis or anything like that, or if like a added acid, um, it definitely reduces enjoyability mm -hmm. on the wine. So it's, I mean, that's all I'm trying to do is just make the most enjoyable wine I can. And uh, usually, you know, managing really early on, I have had to do very little like mistake correcting. Mm -hmm. 
So obviously, it's kind of interesting names and, and labels to go along with your, your wine. Something about that kind of, the kind of creation, creativity process that comes to uh, designing your labels and, and coming up with the names for your wines. Um, the names are all, lot, well, there's two different lines now. I have kind of like my core line, and then I have what I call like the Knot series. And so the Knot series is based from what, how I learned about wine was California wines. And so these are like homages to California wines, but they're not California wines. So that's why everything starts with, like all the names start with not. And it's, uh, it's just kind of funny. I think the slang kid use, kids use today is pretty good. Uh, so that's why I use the, a couple of those. Uh, yeah. But yeah, those are all based on California. Then my core series, is just like what I'm trying to do with Pacific Northwest wines and the ones that I think are really great, like you know Pinot Noir from Yola Amity Hills, uh, Cabernet Franc from you know Washington too. I haven't been talking about them much, but I really like the grapes they put out. And then Southern Oregon Cabernet Franc I think is really great. I think Pinot Gris from the Columbia Gorge is uh, you know one of the better grapes grape region combinations out there in the world. Um, so. The names and the labels are all just trying to reflect like the enjoyability of it and not you know taking it too serious, but you know just in, just enjoying that bottle so when you when you label something not cringy or not basic, what do you mean what does it what does it mean for the consumer um, well especially that not basic is peak pool you know because when you're coming up in wine let's say you're going to take a song class Tablas Creek. It's coming through your world at some point, you know, the winery. Uh, and they have a really good peak pool, but it, you know, they make it in a classic style. I love that wine. I've sold a lot of it. Um, but when I was going to make peak pool from, you know, Columbia Valley, uh, I didn't want to do, again, like we're not in California, so I'm not going to try to do a California style. So we did it 15 days on skins in an open top fermentation. So it's not, you know, a, a basic type wine. It's a, there's a little, I have one called not extra because we didn't extract as much. And then the not basic is that we extracted way more than you would. And that's the kind of the play on those two. What are the reactions to those kinds of wines? Those are pretty unique kinds of wines. Oh, people love them, yeah. The not basic, you know, it's sold out in a month maybe, I don't know. It's all, it's all I don't have any more. The distributors have it, I just don't have any in my warehouse. Uh, the not extra as well. It's a Petite Syrah that, you know, people know Petite Syrahs. It has to be cellared for four years because it's so tannic and and those wines are great. I'm not uh, out here to smear Petite Syrah. I love it. And, uh, you know, I sold so much Parducci Petite Syrah <laughs> at my restaurant, uh, especially the True Grit. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just move that stuff. But when I made it it's not something that I want to drink all the time. So when I made it, I made it as light as possible. You know, what you can do in the Applegate Valley, it's a little cooler there. So I know you have a, also have a pretty strong interest in music and I'm, I'm curious how that kind of ties into your, into your wine making and your wine career. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the times I'm describing wine, I'm using just for whatever reason, my brain like helps understand it if I'm talking what I know about guitar or like putting music together. Because I always think of, because um, I'm on the spot, I cannot remember it, but it was, uh, it's 
guitar player on Chess Records, but he was like the first recorded distorted guitar tones because he had his amp up too loud. Like he just pushed everything through it. And it, you know, the world has since decided that's the best way for a guitar to sound. But that's how I like to get grapes that are uh, smaller. They're not as ripe, and the acid's really high. And then to like push as much out of them as possible, and that'll give me the flavor that I want. And then, especially uh, when I talk about when I'm tasting a wine that I know has been altered in some way, like a reverse osmosis or like a harsh filtering, I can say like the mids are scooped out. Uh, because that's how it registers in my brain. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, it's missing all the mids. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, then uh, I think I forgot to answer this, but when we we're talking about labels, all my core lineup are taking out a Calexico songs. It's a band mm -hmm. in the Southwest that I like. Mm -hmm. You know, being out in El Paso, they were semi-local. You talked earlier about I'm, just, I'm curious to come back to this. You talk about kind of building complexity other ways in your wine, and because yeah. you pick early and you have high acid. So, how have you learned to kind of build complexity other ways? And, and, what, and again, what would you want like someone's reaction to that to be? How, how would you want someone to kind of recognize the complexity of your wine? Um, you know, as a trying to sell wine and someone who you know drink wine, it's really a letdown when you try something and it's just like a hit of a flavor and then nothing. Like there's no finish. Maybe there's no like minerality, it's just fruit and then done. Um, which, you know, and I make young wines, so that's always gonna lean towards that. Um, and one thing I've started doing, especially a, I have a wine called Fortune Teller, uh, which is a Calexico song, but it's the first wine that gets released every year, and it's also the first grapes that get picked every year, so it's kind of like looking forward to that vintage, like. What, a, what, what was I feeling in the cellar? Like how much work was I willing to do this year? What new technique was I gonna try? Cause I usually try it in that grapes to see what's going on. Cause it comes in so much earlier than everything else that I have plenty of time to do whatever I want with it. Like almost a month, mm -hmm. it'll wow. come out of Horse Heaven Hills. Uh, like every Labor Day basically. And then I have so much time before the organ stuff starts to pick that I can really deal with it. But you know, it's like, being in a band or something when I'm picking that fortune teller blend because usually I like to mix it with um, Pinot Gris out of the gourds because I feel like those blend together well you know they just layer on top of each other because the you know naturally the complexities are different I think the uh, weights you said the viscosities are different mm -hmm. so they just go so well together but um, like so Take for instance, maybe you'll do some of it de-stemmed, some of it whole cluster, maybe press one small bit off five days in. Mm -hmm. And so you have like a, like a really dark rosé mixed in with it. So that's giving you a flavor, but that way you, it's a way of getting about three or four flavors into your wine or taste profiles. And I do that, all my wine, only, uh, only one that I make one way is, uh, there's two of them, because I think that they're just great, is Pinot Noir from Eola Amity Hills just goes straight into fermenters, I don't distem. And I also do that with uh, Cab Franc from Southern Oregon, just goes straight into the distemmer. Or no, <laughs> sorry, it goes straight into the bin, no distemmer. Because I think that's the, those were the grapes that are meant for that region, and they're just, which is good. 
What are the kind of, ex of, of experiments have you, have you tried or are, are you trying and what, what else has kind of been added into your kind of regular repertoire from those kind of experiments? Um, I think so, like, especially with rosé, uh, doing carbonic maceration because it gives it a, it brings out like a different type of fruitiness which people may not want so much. I do it in red wines as well when I'm trying to make it lighter and brighter. Uh, but I think with rosé having a carbonic, it's it's thickening or yeah, I would say thickening it up. It's it's making it a little bit more. I want to back up a second to your your kind of restaurant. You mentioned the selling. I'm curious about that side of things as uh, as you're as you're building a wine list and, sell, and selling wine, what were some of the things you kind of focused on and how, how did you, how would you, how would you describe how you built a wine list? What's, what's kind of your philosophy behind that? Um, I would always do it, when I was doing my wine list, I think it was popular at the time and that the way I enjoy it is just uh, by function rather than by region or by varietal or, I just think, you know, you have your, your really light weight bright wines and you have like your medium weight goes with everything wines and you just have your bigger wines and that's how I always sorted mine out and it could be you know a really big red varietal but the way they made it just came off a little smaller so it's on this category instead. Uh, I think some people don't like that because then they have to dig around for what they some people just drink one thing mm -hmm. so then they have to look for the California cab because it may not be in the big one because maybe it was a midweight that year or something or I found an interesting one. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I don't know, I'd like to break, that's how I experience the, the world, so that's how I just, that's how I divide it up. When you were building lists, did you find that it was mostly coming from wines you were seeking out or, or wines that were being presented to you? Oh no, it was definitely wines I was seeking out. That became like a big point of contention with this one rep I was working with, because I would do so much research, and the thing about El Paso is it's so far from the rest of Texas that a lot of the wines would be warehoused in Dallas. And I would have, so I, it was hard for me to do this without drawing attention and I'd get excited about one thing and I'd try to put in these orders because I had a restaurant, my wife had a restaurant, so we had like a pretty good buying power between the two of us. Um, put in these orders, but this one rep realized that like we started to have a certain amount of credibility, so then he would just sell it to everybody. So I would do all this research and this guy was kind of just like swimming in my wake. It became like a really big point of contention for me is that we always pride ourselves on having something different. Like you'd come to our restaurants to get something different. Mm -hmm. You talked about Antique Terra earlier as kind of the Oregon, the pinnacle of Oregon uh, for what people were seeking at that mm -hmm. time. Were there other things from Oregon that were kind of on your mind at that time or that were on um, other people's minds? For whatever reason, um, and I think it's because I had some friends, but I had a lot of doctors that came into my place and they all like to drink the Ravana wine. So when they launched Alexana, that became a thing mm -hmm. that I was getting and bringing in and everybody's excited about that. Um, it's like, uh, I say Colgeen, I don't know if that's how you're supposed to say it because I grew up on the border. I think it may be Colgan, but that wine, like 100 acre out of, it's like those are all California wines, but uh, we're talking about Oregon. I think it, the stuff that people knew may have been limited to like Antica Terra, then the Alexana stuff. Mm -hmm. Obviously the Pinarash is like, I cannot think of this name, that's like the name. Uh, yeah, Pinarash was a big one that I could get and sell. 
even uh, I had uh, Willful here for a while. She was doing uh, what's it called, Jezebel. Mm -hmm. But that would come, you know, I put that on the list every now and again. I have Jezebel, so it's funny to meet her later. Uh, tell me about the, we talked earlier about kind of your first impressions of Oregon wine. What have, what, what have you seen change in the industry since you've been a part of it? Uh, it's just gotten really competitive to buy grapes, I think, um, which is good because I think more vineyards are being planted and that's always going to help. Um, it's also breaking up, you know, these huge vineyards that are planted to one or two things. I think people are planting more. And, and changing what they're doing. I think that's always exciting when you hear about, you know, a big block of Pinot Noir got turned into like Trousseau or Gamay and, you know, just blended more into it. That's always, you know, you never want a monoculture going. And it's getting really expensive. That's what I've noticed about Oregon wine. It's more so now than it was when you started. Oh yeah, yeah. the price for everything, I guess. It's the way the world goes in that direction usually. What about as you look ahead for Oregon wine? What do you see coming in the future? Uh, I mean, nothing bad. Things all going well. Uh, you know, now when you tell people to make wine in Oregon, that's people think it's great. I mean, even people that live in Oregon, they hear you're making wine here. It's like, that's the dream job. Uh, so I, it just has a great reputation in Oregon, I think. Um, it's been a lot of good reputation management. Uh, I think they're doing, some people don't agree with all the Willamette Valley, sub, what is it, conjunctive labeling, but I think that's good. I think uh, all that education out there is just uh, great for everybody. And people are getting really excited about Oregon wines now. And whenever, uh, every time a distributor opens across the United States, they have to have their Oregon producers. It's not you know, something that you could, ignore anymore, I guess. Do you think it's, obviously the reputation is built on Pinot Noir mostly, and that's a lot of people's mm -hmm. first impression of the industry. Do you think that that's still, when people are distributing out of Oregon, is that still what they're looking for, or are they looking for the, the newer, exciting things as well? No, no. I mean, because there's so many good Oregon, I mean, it's easy to make fun of the big guy, but the reason that it's known for Pinot Noir is great. It's so good, but there's people that have dedicated their lives to Pinot Noir that have been doing it a lot longer than me. That those are what you know they've already have the customer base, so they'll usually be in the books. I was trying to think of a polite way to say that I get picked up to not sell Pinot Noir. I guess that's that's where I fit into a, a book. Is uh, the distributor will you know they have eight wines in front of somebody. It's like here's Oregon Pinots, Chardonnays, something else. <laughs> And I'm the something else in those books. But I still sell all my Pinot in the two months, you know, one month. So I don't you know. Is being the something else a role you're happy with? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't mind. Whatever. <laughs> it's, I enjoy, that's what I enjoy making, so it's fine. And I don't think that making cab from Southern Oregon is going to be a something else much longer. I think that's going to be a, what they're looking for. So that's going to be something that really catches on. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that'll... I mean, there's a lot of people down there that... And I'm not down there, so I'm not trying to dictate what they're doing, but, uh, you know, a lot of people are trying to make a grape for that region. But I think Cab Franc has a really good shot at it. 
what other either new varietals or maybe potential future varietals uh, are kind of come online, do you think? I mean, obviously we've seen Gamay taking a rise. You talked about Pet yeah. Mad and kind of and sparkling. What else do you see maybe making a hit in Oregon? Uh, I'm really excited about Austrian and Hungary, uh, Hungarian varietals. I, I love those wines. I think that the more I learned about wine and the more other people got interested in other things, you know, then they start direct importing wines from Hungary and Austria. And it's like, oh, this is exactly what I like. Uh, I think just by the nature of the climate there that they put out these really delicious wines. And so I try to buy as much as I can come across the, those varietals. They're really competitive now because a lot of people agree with me that it's great. But also, especially in the gourds, I think that climate is just perfect to grow it. Uh, so I'd like to see more, you know, a Kerner out there and Zweigelt and things like that. And uh, what's it, La Frankish? Yeah. yeah, people do well at La Frankish in Willamette Valley. Yeah. But they're doing really well, so it's hard to buy now. <laughs> the people that have always sold it have realized, oh, people will buy Blau Frankish now, so I'll just make it myself. <laughs> Um, obviously, we're, we're talking to you in, in the middle of, of COVID-19 pandemic. I, I'm curious how like, kind of your, your wine life has been affected by, by the pandemic. Uh, definitely doing everything myself. Um, I had a part-time employee for a really long time who also worked in restaurants, kind of like on the same path as me is working at restaurants. I sit and realize it's really easy to go learn about wine on the making side, but you know I can't have anybody in here now, so just doing it all myself. I've, called, talked to all my growers and told them I'm fine with machine pick this year if it's what we need to do. So I think that's how we'll go. Is that what you see happening for harvest? Uh, definitely in Washington last year, there wasn't enough pickers and I ended up picking a lot of it myself. Um, and it isn't, I think the pickers now are fine, like the machine pickers are better. And there's enough people that just do that as a service, especially in Eastern Washington. They'll just drive around and do them all. I think, you know, if, if that's what we need to do, I'm fine with it. What about as you look ahead for yourself? What's what's your? You mentioned kind of 5,000 cases is sort of the goal to take yeah. the next step. Uh, what's your kind of timeline? What do you see as you look ahead five, ten years? I don't know. Uh, hopefully within five years, but this all depends on how much I can sell every year, I suppose. I'm really more excited about, you know, being able to work with the varieties that I want to work with and growing that way. Like, I guess I could go buy, you know, 80 tons of whatever and grow to 5,000 cases, but I don't have any interest in doing that. I just want to, hoping that, you know, the stuff that I'm into will be planted more. And uh, I have a lot of confidence with my growers now because I've paid on time and I'm easy to work with. and don't cause a lot of problems. So I think uh, people planning stuff for me is becoming more of a reality. Mm -hmm. So hopefully I can build on those relationships. How many different vineyards do you work with? Oof. I think this year it's 11. And when they talk about planning things for you, is that like the, the Austrian-Hungary varietals we were talking about or other, yeah. other things as well? Uh, yeah, especially, yeah. Sure Everything else I'm working with is around. I love Pinot Meunier. But it wants to rot. It's like impossible to keep it alive. So no one in the, I understand why people in the valley don't want to work with it. I currently buy it in the dry, arid 
uh, Horse Heaven Hills because you can keep it cleaner longer. Um, I would love to work with that, but I'm not going to force that on anybody that's not wanting to contend with it. I understand, like it's rough. In addition to uh, the varieties, is there anything, any other kind of projects or experiments on the horizon that you're excited about? No, that's it. I'm just more excited to be able to just keep doing this, I guess. Would your, someone were to ask you for your advice about getting into the Oregon wine industry, what would your sort of words of wisdom to them be? Uh, I would definitely explain to them the economics of it that if you you know wanted to work at for somebody else there's not a lot of opportunities to you know make like a good living doing that you know, there's only a few really large wineries in Oregon that have multiple employees um, and if they wanted to open their own winery I'd be really open with them about the economics of that and what that looks like and how much that costs because uh, it's uh, it's daunting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, when I was you know now I don't know if I would start <laughs> if I knew everything you know uh, when I was younger then. Blissful ignorance. Yeah. Uh, all right, last question for you. A uh, bit of a philosophical question for you. Uh, you obviously have a kind of interesting uh, perspective on wine coming from selling and now production. So what would you say is wine's role, <clears throat> wine's role in a society? Uh, yeah, it definitely has a romantic quality to it. I think, you know, that's a, there's definitely a lot of romance to it. And it definitely has bred into it some elitism that I think is going away. And I think more people are a lot more casual with their wine. So I think it'll just continue to be they say like memories are stronger if you can involve more of your senses and so you know when you're dealing with wine you have like three senses already engaged so i think it's just always going to be that story you have of that one night that was great or that one afternoon with friends that was amazing that's you know, i think it's what wine's been this is going to be i don't think we're changing anything six thousand years we've been doing it as a society Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything I, I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we, we didn't cover here that we should have covered? No, that's it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your hospitality here. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.